Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Connie Rojas. Connie, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so my name is Connie. I am a fourth-year PhD student in integrative biology in the Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior program here at Michigan State. And I am studying my field of research, studies microbes and animals and the environment all in one. I'm from California, and I'm a first-generation consciousness. Could you elaborate a little bit more about what your research is on specifically? Yeah, so... um. So we have microbes that colonize all parts of our body and even the interior as well. And these microbes are actually, for the most part, they're actually doing very good things for our health. Without them, we would not function as human beings. And the same is true for animals. So we actually have a lot of research focusing on the, on researching these microbial communities, which are actually termed the microbiome in humans. And we know a lot about what they're doing in the, in the intestine and what kind of things, what kind of factors affect their their structures? Because if you think of it, like these organisms, they have a certain like organization and like composition. And once you start sort of messing with the numbers and the members who are there, it's gonna have an effect because they live in your body and they're doing things. So we have the same sort of hypotheses in animals. If anything, we think they play a bigger role in their behavior and their physiology, and we just don't know much about them yet so my research is trying to figure out what kind of good things are these microbes doing in in wild animals and what kind of things in the animals and in their environments can affect these microbial communities and i specifically study these in spotted hyenas which are social carnivores that live in sub-saharan africa do you specifically look at the gut microbiome or which microbiome? Because there's like the bladder microbiome yes. as well and stuff like that. Uh, exactly. So I my research actually looks at multiple. So my first, not to get into much into this, but my first chapter focuses on the microbiome and multiple body sites. So I'm looking at in the hyena's ear, in their um, mouth, and there's like certain organs. Like there's they have like a pseudo, I don't know if I can say this, but they have a pseudo penis, and I'm looking at the microbiome there and the nose and sort of like the, the rectum because I you could look at the gut microbiome through the feces but for this I'm looking strictly at the rectum so that was the first chapter my second and third chapter are focused strictly on the gut microbiome so like what kind of um, bacteria are inhabiting the intestines of these animals and then another chapter is looking at the gut microbiome but of the animals that live in the same ecosystem as these hyenas. Because if you think of it, like if these microbes are doing good things, we also want to know about where they're coming from. Is it through the food that they're eating, through other hyenas, through the soil? Like wh- where is it coming? So if we are able to compare the microbiomes of the prey that they eat and their microbiome, we can see how much overlap there is between the two. You had mentioned chapters. Chapters for what? Uh, oh, so chapters for my dissertation. Uh, as I said, I'm a PhD student. I have about two years left to write about five chapters that constitute my my main research, which is on the microbiome of the hyenas. Have you had an opportunity to go out to the area in Africa where these hyenas are living and existing? Exactly. So last spring during this time, or no, I came back in July. So I was there from March through the end of June. 
and I was mostly collecting samples. So I'm part of a laboratory whose focus is actually behavior and ecology of these hyenas. And we have a large laboratory of at least 14 grad students. And you would think that there would be a lot of trouble an overlap between projects, but everybody's doing completely different things using hyenas as a system, right? We, we don't study hyenas. We use them as a system to explore questions in evolution and behavior and ecology. So my research is the only one that worked, is looking at the microbiome and these bacteria. So because of that, because we could do a lot of analyses through samples themselves, not so much behavior, right? Which whereas somebody in my lab who's doing problem solving in hyenas, and she has to watch them and take videos of how they're solving puzzles and problems, she has she actually has to spend more time in the field versus I, I, I only spent there four months. But even with those four months, I was like collecting sa those samples that I was talking to you about different animals in the ecosystem because those samples had not been collected before. And I had to go in and collect it. Because another thing about the project is that it's been going on for 30 years. So we've been watching the same population of hyenas for over 30 years now. So we have a wealth of behavioral data and samples, fecal and blood. So I, I, I came in being able to start my project right away because these samples were in the freezer already. But, but I went to like get additional samples that were not, that were particular to my project. What questions can you and your lab answer with hyenas? See, um, hyenas are a very interesting system. They're very similar to primates. So everything that people study using primates, right? like the human uh, evolution or behavior, complex behavior, complex social behavior, they can be studied in hyenas. There's a lot of overlap between primates and hyenas. For example, they both live in very large groups that have a lot of different individuals. So you could just imagine the complexity of different behaviors that these hyenas have, knowing everybody in the group and some of their friends, some are not, some is family, some is not family. Some of them are intruders, some of them are not. Like they got to keep track of all of that. On top of that, they have a, both groups, both primates, well, at least like baboons and macaques and hyenas have a dominance hierarchy in which there's a social ladder system that determines their priority of access to resources. So hyenas that are at the top, they sort of get everything. They, they get all the best food. They live longer. They're, they have a lot of babies. And they, the most important thing is that get, they could steal food from other hyenas because hyenas that are lower ranking than them have to obey them. So that's another unique thing is that they have a very strict hierarchy. It's like we don't know what is enforcing this hierarchy. Why don't just hyenas rebel or like refuse to to be submissive to this other hyena who is not only smaller than them, but probably weaker than them. Because if you think about it, even babies that are higher ranking have power over a full adult hyena. So things like that where like they have a very complex social system. They have the whole female dominance, which is very unique in animal systems, right? The females are higher ranking, have a higher social status, higher power than all of the males in the group, even the highest ranking male. Um, so, yeah, if your project is remotely interested in sort of variation in behavior, and it's, if, if it relates to social status or the complex environment, not just the social environment, but just where they live. I mean, they're hunters. They hunt their top predators. They eat all kinds of things. They don't get sick. They have very strong immune systems. Just all that coming together, especially for my project, where one part is looking at what is it of in the hyena, in the hyena's environment that has the potential to structure and like change these communities. And one of the things I'm looking at is, for example, the social ladder system that I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about age. Um, we're talking about sex. So, and again, one of the great things about this project is that we have 30 years worth of data. So we, one of my projects is actually looking at three generations of hyenas. So we have the, the mom, the original mom that was alive back in the 80s when my PhD advisor started this project. And then we have their daughters who are probably still alive, but the other ones, the moms are not. And then we have their daughter's daughter, so the granddaughter who's currently alive right now and is probably going to have babies soon. So we have those three generations of data where we can do all kinds of comparisons between like transmission of bacteria across different generations or how much, how stable is it within it? Not just between generations, like mom and daughter, but also within the hyena's lifetime. I mean, they live for 13 years, more or less. And we have data on those 13 years, right? Because we're watching these hyenas every day of the year for 30 years now. So that's, it could lead to all kinds of really interesting analyses. Thank you for that really comprehensive insight on the different aspects of research that your laboratory looks into. That had me thinking, is there a relationship possibly between the gut microbiome and the way that the hierarchy system is set up in the hyenas? That's what our hypothesis, at least my hypothesis, is is that because these hyenas, um, because their rank means everything, right? They it basically determines how well their diet is. So we could expect that the hyenas at the higher rank are eating more meat. They're eating more in general. They're less stressed versus the hyenas that are really low rank. They get all their food stolen. They have harder time eating. So they're probably eating leftovers. They're eating like the, the innards, bone, whatever's left after all the higher ranking hyenas have finished eating, if they leave anything at all. So we're we're it's so we're saying that it's basically diet, right? Diet interacting with social status, and and perhaps some physiological aspects as well. Like maybe the hyenas that are higher ranking are less stressed or more stressed than the hyenas that are um, lower. So things like that where we're, that's, that's kind of the most direct thing we have. Have you already seen visible differences between these hierarchies? Yes. Um, in my current, the current project I'm working on right now is already seeing uh, modest effects of social rank. So you got to think, microbiome studies in general, they, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint an exact factor that is the most influential factor because all kinds of things are going on in your body and outside that are maybe influencing i mean in humans there's like diet there's exercise there's where you live who you live with if you have a dog things like that or like all these things and you could just imagine in wild animals where we have no control over what they do or who they hang out with it so we're we're just taking in the data as it is and as as it's showing right now like the 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 factors that I'm finding like somewhat of a significant effect is social rank, it's age, it's how big their group is. So the bigger it is, we we don't know exactly why, but it's very different than if the group is very small. And and we know this because the group has been getting larger over time. Uh, at least the same group of hyenas that we've been looking at. But actually, the most influential factor that I'm finding in my research right now is the local environment. So there's something about that particular day and month and year in these hyenas 
that is just determining what their community looks like. Because if you look at that same hyena a month later, it looks nothing like it, even if it's the same hyena. Or even, um, yeah, or, or, or across, across their lives, it changes as well. So there's, it's very particular to that specific moment in time. So there's something about this environment, maybe a combination of things, right? What they ate that day, what were they doing immediately before they defecated? What were the stress levels? That's that's where my research is now leading me to to believe that it's just a combination of factors that are um, very about the local environment. You brought up how the lab has different generations of samples from these different hyenas. Does the hierarchy carry over like the way a dynasty does in human civilization, or does it change throughout different periods of, of the season, for example? In, in hyenas, the hierarchy is inherited, so it is passed down. So you actually inherit the rank right below that of your mother and above that of your siblings if they were born before you. Um, uh, so you could imagine that there's generations of hyenas that have been at the top for a very long time, and it's very hard for them to not remain at the top. The same thing goes for the lower ranking. You're kind of just born there, and there's no way out. Except there's a current research by my by one of my um, lab mates who just published a paper a month ago showed that there has been a few instances in the 30 years of this project where there have been major changes in the hierarchy, where there's visible, where hyenas that were at the bottom switched, made a jump to be alpha, the highest ranking um, hyenas. And the way they did that, according to his research, which is very cool, is that they got a lot of allies around them. So hyenas that had a lot of allies and friends were able to topple their way to the top and overthrow the alpha female. But it's very rare instance. But when it does, it's because of the allies. That's quite inspiring. I have another question. You had mentioned that over the generations, the pack is expanding. Is it expanding through pop, like repopulation or are other hyenas able to join this? Like, Would they allow an outside hyena to come in? Yes. Okay. So, uh, repeat that again because I know the answer. Was just yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm basically asking if... Hyenas from the outside are allowed to come in, or if they're expanding through pop, like repopulation. There's two reasons for the population growth in these hyenas. One is that they don't die of many. They don't die because they don't get sick. The the only way that these hyenas die is through human involvement, in which they get poisoned or speared, or starvation, or because they got old. So that's that's the only way. They're, if they get bitten by a snake, they don't die. If they eat rotten things, they don't die. They have very robust immune systems. So you can just imagine that these hyenas that make it past the critical period of infancy, when half of them die, like when they're really young, at one like within the first six months of life, if they make it past that, they're golden. They're gonna live for a long time, unless for those reasons that I said. And then the second reason is that um, males are able to join in the clan if they come in from other groups. So females stay in their natal homes, in natal groups for life. They have kids, they stay there, they die in their clans. But males, the ones that lived in that group, when they reach puberty, when they reach reproductive maturity, they leave 
to neighboring clans in search of reproductive opportunities. Because if you think about it, they don't want to stay and have their moms and aunts and sisters or the only mates they could find. They, so they search elsewhere. And the same thing. We have new incoming males who are coming in from other groups to join the clan. And they and they are. It's not like in primates where they fight to the death and they kill each other. They mostly let them in and they join in the hierarchy at the bottom and move their way up with time. Thanks for telling us about that. My last question about your research is what has been, in your opinion, your most favorite experience working in this laboratory? Definitely having the opportunity to travel to the field. I mean, it's, we're literally living a safari every day when we travel to Kenya and to our campsite. And uh, it's called the Masai Mara National Reserve. And if you've heard of the Serengeti ecosystem, it's a giant grassland. It's the same ecosystem, except that it's called Serengeti in Tanzania. And it becomes the Masai Mara once it crosses the border to Kenya. But it's the same. It's a very complex system. I mean, we have everything. We have the elephants, giraffes, hippos, wildebeest, these hyenas, lions, cheetahs, all the big cats. And it's just beautiful to, to be there. It's hard work and it's stressful. But these, these hyenas and these animals that you get to see every day just make, make it really worth it. And I've took absolutely beautiful pictures. You never get bored of it. Every day you go out and you're still with all every, just looking at everything. And it's so beautiful. I mean, there's no permanent structure nearby. As as far as your eyes can see, it's it's just grass and the nothing but grass and these animals on, and on all directions. So it's very beautiful. Sounds like paradise. Yeah, almost sounds like a scene from The Lion King. <laughs> Well, speaking of The Lion King, we have that movie coming out pretty oh. soon uh, where they're doing a, a remake, remake of it. And in The Lion King, they always show the hyenas to be the part of the antagonists. Are there any takeaway messages you want our listeners to learn about to destigmatize the name behind hyenas? This is my goal in life, to try to combat these myths regarding hyenas. So I want people to obviously enjoy the movie. It's probably going to be a great movie. I love The Lion King. I love, like, the message is really great. Except that these hyenas are portrayed in a very negative light. There's a, first of all, they make them seem like they're just scavenging hyenas, that they just steal food from lions. They do, but they also hunt a lot. At least in our population, they hunt over 90% of the food that they eat. So we're not talking about hyenas that are kind of hunting and mostly scavenging. They're mostly hunting. And lions and hyenas steal food from each other all the time. It's not just a one-way street. Both of them do it. Um, so that's one thing. And then also, I really hope they work on the imagery and the visuals regarding these hyenas. Because in the first movie, they were so ugly and just not at all realistic about how hyenas look like so i'm thinking in this remake if anything i want them to get that right go to go to kenya look at these how these hyenas look they look way cuter especially the babies they almost look like puppies at a young age yeah they look like puppies they have big ears um kind of bear-like as well um so we're, we're thinking that 
they portray them just like the smart and the intelligent and the complex individuals that they are. And that's a lot to ask for because the whole movie revolves around <laughs> them being villains. But now the audience knows that there's more to them, even after they see this movie. You talked a lot about how you would want to change the perspectives of different people when it comes to these hyenas. Are you involved in any programs in the local community right now that uh, you work to help bring the science of what you do to the local community? This past year and last year, I was part of Skype of Scientists. I don't know if you heard where they connect scientists, PhD students, graduate students, master students, faculty, with classrooms around the nation that are interested in talking to a real scientist. So I've done that like six times, and it's been really fun to talk to these fourth graders, these sixth graders, even some high school students about what I do, what my everyday looks like, what it means to be a scientist, and also these hyenas, because most of them also don't come in not knowing much about them or knowing the wrong things about them. So it's really nice to see their face light up when I tell them, Hyenas are actually like this, and this is how they actually look like. And they really like, enjoy that. So I really enjoy that. So, and then I do a lot of things working with, with my community as well. I mean, I'm Mexican. I'm first generation. I was low income. So I'm always trying to reach back to the community and share the wealth of knowledge that I've acquired over the years. So right now, currently, I'm an instructor for Upward Bound, for MSU's Upward Bound. And so... Usually a a year-long program. During the year, there's high school students that come in and get help with their homework and tutoring and all kinds of academic services from MSU staff. So that's undergrad students, grad students, faculty. But during the summer, they have sort of like an intensive six-week program where they students come volunteer to come in and take classes and keep learning and do work and right now I'm teaching um psychology course a research writing a plant biology and a human anatomy class so they're, they're short lessons and the coolest part that I'm finding is that we have full control over the curriculum so we make it we decide what we're teaching and I'm focusing mostly on teaching them things that they're definitely going to see once they go to college because these are all students that want to go to college and they're sophomores and juniors, some of them seniors. And so I, it's been really nice to be charged because I, right, I've gone through college. I know what I saw a lot. I know what's important. I know how to make it interesting, how to make it accessible. For, most importantly, make it accessible. That's, that's sort of where I spend a lot of time. I'm spending way more time on this than my actual research, but it's been really in, in, enjoyable to, to sort of, because if I want to go into faculty and teaching after this, then this oper- this experience is making me realize that maybe it is something that I should continue pursuing because I wasn't sure. So another thing about PhD, it's a long journey. It's, it's five or six years. Students get burnt out. I was starting to get burnt out being like, do I really want to continue the same life, right? When I go on to be a faculty in my own laboratory of having the stress of writing all the time and grants and manuscripts and pressure. But then, uh, so if 
maybe I won't go into that, or maybe I will, but I definitely think I will go into teaching and, and these courses. Are there any other pathways that you're possibly looking at for whenever you do complete your PhD? I've been, that's been, I've been thinking about this a lot this year because, right, because I came in for my first four years knowing I want to be a faculty member, I want to be a principal investigator, have my own laboratory, sort of do everything that my PhD advisor is doing. But now I'm, I'm thinking of alternate routes, right? I've, maybe I'll just do a teaching-heavy position at a community college or a small liberal arts college. Or I'm also considering industry because industry, they could use a lot of my expertise that I'm bringing in. That's the thing that I like about my PhD experience and project is that it blends in a lot of different skills, right? I have the field work. I have sort of the ecological background. I have the, the data analysis. I'm also doing a little bit of genomics, right? Um, the only way that you can study these bacteria is through genes, through DNA, through... So I'm, I, I'm getting a lot of experience both in the bench right in in the laboratory and through computational approaches to deal with this massive genomic data that i have and all, all those skills together i think make me very well rounded to go into industry so someone who is either doing work with genes or genomics or the microbiome the microbiome is huge there's a lot of um startups in trying to figure out right how to nurture your microbiome and sort of make it do good things for you it's very commendable of the things that you're involved with it's really good that you're trying to work with people now and do the, the teaching stuff now so you have the experience and kind of sift through all of them i really like that you do skype a scientist because i do that as well and it's awesome i also just recently signed up for letters to a pre-scientist which you might like as well where you can be a pen pal with another student across the country and like talk to them about science like you're just like writing them a letter but um, are you a part of any, like, organizations on campus? Like, it's really nice to have a community, especially, like, being a first generation as well. Like, it's nice to be a community, like, with communities. That's been one of the my big priorities he here in my PhD program because I realized when I was in college, community was everything. Uh, they're the ones that helped me and succeed and push through difficult times. So coming in here, I was determined to look at many different communities so during my first two years, I was part of SACNAS, which is the Society for the Advancement of Native Americans slash Hispanics. And it's for P, uh, graduate students and undergrad who are from underrepresented groups in science. And we did a lot of professional development meetings where we socialized and sort of built community. So I did that. And then I also did MICA, which stands for the Michigan Indigenous Chicanx Community Alliance. And that one was mostly focused on activism in cultural programming. So we're the ones that uh, organize our yearly Day of the Dead event here at Michigan State. It was a big event where we sort of let the community experience what Day of the Dead is like. It's a big event in Mexican culture where we honor the people who have passed away in our lives. But we did things like that where it was mostly focused on Latinx community activism and, and sort of celebrating the culture. I'm also part of ACAP which stands for Alliances for Graduate Education and Professoriate, which we're all part of, I think. And it's been a really supportive community for all kinds of also underrepresented grad students in all fields, not just STEM. And it's been really nice because I, I've had the opportunity to meet people that were outside my department, outside of STEM. And it's 
they're really supportive. Every meeting is very different, and I, I just enjoyed going to to all of them, and I always feel good after, feel motivated to continue. And they also have a lot of different resources, not just the professional development. I mean, they have financial resources, like the, the they have a scholar award, which gives you money for either your supplies or your research. They also have a conference where you get to present your your work. So things like that, where they know what grad students need, and, and they're providing that. And it's been really nice. Thanks a lot, Connie, for taking the time to sit down with us over the last half hour. As a lasting remark, is there any advice that you would give to anyone that is interested in going into field work, whether it's in undergrad or grad school? I would recommend that they look at the type of research that is being done at their current institution if they're in college. And there's a lot of faculty in biology departments and ecology departments, even some microbiology departments that are doing very geological departments as well, that are doing a lot of field work. And just reach out to them, say that you're really interested in the research, that you want to be a part of. Most of the time, you come in being a volunteer, so you will not get paid for your work in the beginning, but you get a lot of experience. And then hopefully if you stay in that lab, you get better and then you eventually either get a research project out of it and a paper and or you also get paid. So it's I suggest that they look at that research. There's also a lot of summer programs. If they are in college, there's the NSF um, RU program, which calls for research experience for undergraduates, which you get to conduct research at, across many institutions in the United States who are willing to host students and they give you a stipend and they pay for you to travel there if the interest, if the research matches their interests and if they get selected by the people who are running the program. So I would say that, and study abroad, that's the last thing, study abroad is a, a big opportunity for them if they want to get started on their field work. That's where I started my field work. I, because right, I had spent all my three years of college just being in the laboratory looking at cells and microscopes. And when I studied abroad, I actually went to Australia and I studied the rainforest and the animals and the plants. That's where I got my first taste of, of field work. That's really important, especially due to the fact that a lot of the applications for these REUs and study abroad programs are starting to open up for the next year. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Connie. Yeah, thank you. This was a great experience. I hope people get something out of it and enjoy listening and learning more. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Scifiles. <laughs>